everyone to Free Association here on Unsafe Space. My name is Carter Laren. This is a new series that we're doing with a pretty simple agenda where we talk to interesting people who can provide an important perspective or information on relevant political, cultural, or philosophical issues. Before we begin, please take a moment to like this video. Make sure that you are subscribed to the channel on whatever platform you're using. Uh, and if you're able, please consider heading over to unsafespace.com to support us financially. None of this is free. So let's get into that. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about uh, Elon Musk's bid to purchase Twitter and his interaction with Twitter and their response. A lot of speculation. Some of us, mea culpa, getting some things wrong once in a while out of ignorance for the process on how the process works. But wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice if we could speak with an expert in technology mergers and acquisitions. Uh, maybe someone who devoted their entire life to tech M&A uh, involving publicly traded Delaware corporations like Twitter. Uh, someone familiar with, with the law, familiar with the process. Well, it turns out we can. I happen to have a friend named Michael Tedesco. He's kind of a tech M&A badass. And uh, I just invited him to come on for a brief chat with us to help set th things straight for us and tell us how this works and what's what's really most likely to happen here. So how these kind of transactions work, what's typical, what, what can happen, what can't happen, will the board get sued, what obligation do they have, what's, you know, what are the options available to Elon Musk, what, is his, what are his next steps. So he's going to just walk us through that so that at least from now on, we're operating with a little bit more knowledge um, when we try and speculate about what might happen with Elon Musk's purchase or proposed purchase of Twitter. So let's hear what Michael has to say. I hope you enjoy this. Michael, welcome to Unsafe Space. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, Carter. Great to see you again. Uh, you too, man. I, Michael, just for the, so the audience knows, Michael and I have known each other for a while, and I... I was going to say Michael is an M&A dude. He did uh, the PeopleSoft Oracle thing. He did Compaq HP, but those are the only ones I remembered. And then I decided I would look up this blurb about you. I'm just going to read it to make you um, blush so that you can, this is, this is Michael's background. Michael Tedesco is one of the top technology deal makers of his generation with 23 years experience advising CEOs and boards of companies at all stages of their life cycle. Based in Silicon Valley since 2001, he's advised on 100 plus completed M&A and financing transactions with aggregate value in excess of $100 billion. This includes many of the highest profile transformative transactions in technology, such as the PeopleSoft takeover defense and subsequent sale to Oracle, EDS sale to HP, IBM's acquisition of Cognos and PwC Consulting, and the HP Compact merger. Such advisory roles were recognized five times for the Investor Dealers Digest Technology Deal of the Year. And I think now you're at Momentum Cyber, is that right? I am. It's my own firm. Doing uh, M&A predominantly in security, cybersecurity space. Cybersecurity, pr primarily for private companies. Uh, but in my former roles, I worked mostly on public companies that were incorporated in the state of Delaware. So not a lawyer, but very familiar with uh, the rules of the road for uh, companies such as Twitter. Yeah. So this is what we. This the reason I want to talk to you. Um, everyone's talking about Elon's bid to buy Twitter, and um, some of us, uh, mea culpa, sometimes have bad takes, like, oh, this is what's going to happen, and 
I said something on Twitter and you're like, nope, that's just wrong. Uh, so that's why I wanted to have you on on the show. Um, let's just start like with a, a quick recap for people who I think everyone's been paying attention this much. Elon bought about 9.2% of the shares in March. Uh, he was going to join the board. He was you know, tweeting about his free speech and the importance of, uh, of free speech on the Twitter platform. Um, he was going to join the board. Meanwhile, I guess we didn't realize this, but uh, prior to us even learning that Elon had purchased 9.2%, Vanguard went and upped their stake to 10.29%. Um, then we learned of Elon's 9.2% stake. Then he signed a letter to Twitter limiting his uh, ownership to 14.9%, basically saying, I'm going to join the board and in exchange I agree to not ever buy more than 14.9%. We all talked about him joining the board. Uh, then Vanguard disclosed, hey, uh, <laughs> we actually bought a stake. We're the biggest shareholder. Um, and the board has not officially rejected. So, oh, so then he said he's not going to join the board. Then uh, the CEO of Twitter said, oh, Elon's not joining the board. So then Elon comes out with his offer, uh, $54.20 a share, which is a roughly $43 billion offer in a letter to the chairman, Brett Taylor, which he, he posts links to. It's a nice short letter. It's a good letter to read if you care. Um, and uh, and then we get board members kind of rejecting it. And uh, Al-Walid bin Talal from the Kingdom Holding Company, I guess they own some. He says, we reject. We're one of the, he says, we're one of the largest and long-term shareholders of Twitter. We reject this offer. Um, then the board adopted a poison pill, which I'm going to talk to you about, um, <laughs> to try and prevent this. Jack Dorsey's been bitching about the board on Twitter a little bit. Yeah. Um, like. Yeah. Uh, and now we've got Apollo Global Management is kind of sniffing around saying, well, we might participate in someone's bid, Elon's or anyone else's bid. Um, so it's kind of a mess. And a lot of people were talking about the the poison pill and what how this will play out. Before we even get into the details of the poison pill, what's your sense of what's going on here? Like, what did did Elon plan? Did he know that this was going to go this direction? Uh, what are the options here? What's the likelihood that any of this will happen? And I'm going to throw one more thing on top of this. What do you think about Elon buying Twitter generally? Okay, before we start, I want to make sure nobody mistakes me for a pacifist. My coffee cup says peace <laughs> through superior firepower. So, so you know where I'm coming from on that. I actually have two of those in my, I just drank out of one this morning. So I, uh, well, let me start with, uh, you want me to start with my like, general thoughts on Elon? I don't think the world needs any yeah. more hot takes on him and I don't have any particular expertise. Well, I don't, I, not, not general on Elon, but on, uh, are you, would you support his ownership of Twitter? Like, is that just so people know what side you're on? Are you an Elon hater or are you like, yeah, it would be good for him to buy Twitter? No, I'm, I'm definitely not an Elon hater. I would say probably as you did uh, earlier in his career when I thought Tesla was a bit of a, a you know, government subsidized uh, scam uh, in the whole green energy thing. I, I would say I would would have liked to dislike him. Um, but, you know, with respect to why I think he wants to acquire Twitter, which is he believes it's, you know, it's, whatever you believe of, uh, whatever you think about uh, Elon, I think it's 
hard to argue that he's not coming from a place of trying to make the world uh, a better place, at least in terms of how he interprets it. And I think he you know, correctly views Twitter as an extremely important uh, part of the communications ecosystem and how people uh, obtain information and uh, how they act on. And I, he believes the way Twitter is being governed now and managed now uh, is an impediment to that, uh, to the disservice of you know the world as he sees it. So I think his motivations to acquire Twitter, which are really unique, at least you know when, when I was in the M&A business, if somebody wanted to acquire a company, it was because they thought they could make money, you know, almost yep. ex- almost exclusively, <laughs> either through some strategic synergy or they thought it was so mismanaged they could manage it better. But I don't think that's Elon's play at all here. And that's why I, I, do, I believe he started, you know, initially when, when he acquired the stock. I think his end game is he hoped uh, he could get a seat on the board and, you know, influence uh, change from within. And, uh, you know, as Elon often does, uh, you know, the guy's gotten himself in trouble with the SEC as, most, as much as anybody. I think he probably, you know, didn't fully understand what it meant to join the board and how much that would tie his hands. Uh, and, you know, I think he quickly pivoted and realized he couldn't affect the change uh, to the extent he wanted to uh, by joining the board. And what you, what you described of uh, limiting his uh, acquisition of stock to 14.9%, that's what's called a standstill agreement, you know. So that, that, that uh, negotiation seems like it went quickly sideways. Do you think that he – part of me was wondering um, – part of me was wondering if he – bought the Twitter shares, knew that this would go this direction, but that the stock price would go up in the meantime and and bought the Twitter shares as like, a, well, if it doesn't work out for buying Twitter, at least I'll have made some money because I'll sell them at the end of the day at a profit and my time will be not wasted. Uh, so like, I, I was wondering, did he buy them knowing that, that he was never going to actually join the board, it was never going to work and he was going to then have to make an offer? Or do you think he like bought them and then really, like you're saying, like, oops, I'm pivoting and I'm not, I want to buy the company. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know, Carter. I just don't know what his motivation is there, but I would say what you described, uh, you know, an activist investor is often a win-win situation, you know, where they can acquire what's called a toehold in the business and either, you know, even if they don't ultimately want to acquire control of the company or join the board, you know, just, you know, Carl Icahn, there's, there's like a number right. yeah. of, activist funds they almost always make money just merely by acquiring the company and you know it gets the stock price up and it's you know if you want to ultimately own the company it's a very you you called in your in your twitter feed a bear hug it's a very typical starting point what what he originally sent to the ceo that's not an offer uh for the company that's that's a bear hug letter a suggestion of interest from a tactical perspective that's frequently done even if a company, you know, even if an acquirer hasn't yet obtained financing or made a decision to make a full-blown offer, because what it does is causes the share price to go up. Okay. And and the reason the share price usually goes up is uh, there's a new class of investors that come in. They're called merger arbitragers. And they only they may or may not have a view on Twitter, but you know they're buying the stock in hopes that it gets put into play, and you know ultimately sold for a uh, higher price than they paid for it in the near term. 
They're not long-term investors. And you're not going to get the entire shareholder base to turn over. But that getting some constituent of new money in who is acquiring the stock because they want the company to be sold is helpful if you ultimately have to affect a, a hostile offer. And then it's playing that, out. It's very fascinating not to geek out too much, but it's playing out no, very, please. very well here because it's you know it's clear not just the Saudi guy, but Vanguard, BlackRock. There are other shareholders who may not be a hundred percent, you know, focused on the value of their Twitter shares. Uh, yeah, I, I that's something that uh, I'm glad you brought that up because so just looking quickly, I'm just on. Because I'm old, I still use Yahoo Finance. I don't know why, um, but or that was my my inclination was to run to Yahoo Finance. The 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 shareholders here: Vanguard Group, Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, State Street, um, FMR, Aristotle, Ark Investment, Barclays. Like these are some of the big Twitter shareholders. Uh, and then there's some funds, uh, Fidelity and and Spider and stuff. Um, I'm I'm wondering if what we're seeing here because Twitter's not a cash cow. Um, no. I, I'm wondering if what we're seeing here is, uh, if this is almost the, the, the first real quantitative measurement that we have of how much the, the ESG ideology, uh, how much they're willing to spend on ED, ESG ideology, how much are they willing to sacrifice sound financial decisions to push an agenda? Uh, and it sounds like you're alluding to that. You think that might be the case for some of these. I do believe it could be the case that that could be a whole uh, a whole separate talk as well, and that gets much more into the opinion as opposed to experience Fair. and facts. But um, I'll use what I mean. BlackRock is a notorious. I mean, Larry Fink. Uh, keep in mind, BlackRock they're managing other people's money. If if right. you put your money into a BlackRock fund, ninety nine percent, unless it's an ESG specific fund, ninety nine percent of of the people who put their money into a BlackRock fund do it to preserve wealth and create wealth. They don't do it for some agenda. So for Larry Fink to take his personal agenda using other people's money to try to affect ESG or social change through companies, in my opinion, is a breach of his fiduciary duty to his shareholders who ultimately yeah. own own the stock and Twitter, not him personally. But that's a that could be a very fascinating topic, but it's it's an overlay here. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, it is a fascinating topic. Maybe but, we'll but talk about as it. it. As it relates to uh, Elon's likelihood of success here, it's a real impediment because generally you just count on shareholder greed, you know, and and, and not just greed, but they have a fiduciary obligation to uh, you know make the right economic decisions for the people who have put money into their funds. But here it's clear. I mean, the Saudi guy doesn't have to because it's his own money. Right. If he prefers Twitter the way it is, as opposed to the way uh, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk prefer Twitter to be run, he's it's his own money. He can vote, you know, his conscience, yeah. as can any individual shareholder. Uh, yeah. So that's a. But, I think that's a. I think that's a strong headwind here. That you know, at least it looks like a pretty sizable chunk of Twitter's top shareholdings are not going to be solely motivated by, you know, getting the highest price uh, for, for the stock. Yeah. Which does, which does make it weird. He's going to have to be, he's going to have to buy them out of their morals. If he's going to, they're, if they, 
if he succeeds, he's going to have to pay a premium for for their to go against their woke agenda. Um, Perhaps unusual. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk about you mentioned fiduciary responsibility. So he makes this. He said it wasn't a real offer, but it's like a like a, what is it like a letter of intent kind of thing? How, how would you describe his his filing of the paperwork? And he, like he did file with the SEC that he was making an offer and and uh, sent a letter to the chairman uh, of whatever it was fifty four twenty was his offer per share. Is is do they had did the board have an obligation to do like what are the, what's their obligation to do with that? Can they just be like, no, we don't like this guy, go away. I mean, yeah, there's, they have, there's, like, they uh, there, and then maybe we, we, maybe we should just have uh, like a, a brief discussion of just basic rules of the road for, for Delaware listed corporations. But um, there, there's, there's two ways to, to approach a company. There's a public bear hug or a private bear hug, a, a, a private bear hug. You could send an offer. Elon could have done this privately and the company, if it's not a formal tender offer, which I can get into the company's under no formal uh, obligation to respond. Um, okay. But clearly, when Elon went public with his offer, um, I don't know if legally there's a need to respond. But you know, just in terms of managing your own employee base, customers, uh, just you know, best practices, a board has you know, I would say always responds somehow to a public letter. It's usually, there's actually a phrase for it. it's called "stop, look, and listen." You generally just say we're going to stop, look, and listen. Don't reject it outright. Don't accept it outright. You know, only a fool would take the first offer. So this is this is pretty regular course for a, a you know public offer for a company. And do you think he did it publicly precisely so that they wouldn't just dismiss it privately and to put pressure on them? I mean, it seems like you know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm, again, don't, don't know Elon, but my view is he. I think he went into this thinking he could, you know, affect change without having to spend forty-five billion dollars on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the board the board doesn't have to. Even just, if the let let's say the board let's say I make an offer for a hundred bucks a share, which is like outrageous. The board's not under any obligation to turn around to the shareholders and say, "Hey, do you guys want this?" They can just be like, "No." no. No, no. This okay. This is a good segue just into basic Delaware, and I won't pontificate too long, even though I could. So, Delaware law, which is where the vast majority of the companies, uh, public companies, are incorporated, they are incorporated there for a reason, and that's because the case law, in terms of how you deal with shareholder uh, rights and responsibilities between shareholders and boards of directors in Delaware, is very well established. It's very rational. There may be some things you don't agree with or you or you do agree with, but you know what you're getting. It's not as arbitrary, I would argue, as the U.S. Supreme Court. It's certainly not as arbitrary as antitrust laws. So it's striking a very fine balance between because it's evolved uh, yep. it, it, between because most like BlackRock, a lot of these index funds, they don't want to make decisions about whether a company should be sold or not. They want the boards to make those decisions. They, they, you generally in the, in the Delaware courts, shareholders, if they don't like what the company's doing, they vote with their feet, they sell the stock, they move on. Passive investors. Okay. So, so boards of directors are there to hold management accountable, change management if management uh, isn't uh, doing the right thing for shareholders. But boards are given 
very wide latitude in Delaware courts as to whether a company should be sold or not. And they're given the okay. presumption of innocence. Unless there's some kind of conflict of interest, the Delaware courts don't want to make decisions on behalf of boards as to whether a company should be sold or not. But if a company, if, if a board does decide that a company should be sold, and as a capitalist, I like this, in Delaware, your sole obligation is to get the highest price. It's not like that in other states. I, I believe Minnesota, for example, can take into account stakeholders. I mean, an example being, okay. if PeopleSoft were going to were, were incorporated in Minnesota and Oracle offered $100 a share, but was going to fire every employee, great for shareholders, not so good for employees, customers. Uh, in Delaware, it doesn't matter. In certain states, okay. you could, you could accept an inferior offer or choose not to sell the company for ESG, you know, as a broad term issues. Okay. That doesn't apply to Twitter. Twitter's right. Cause they're in Delaware. If, if Twitter's board does decide to sell the company, uh, you know, they have to sell to the highest bidder, you know, just broadly risk, risk adjusted certainty of close and other things. So I like that about that, but, and they, and they can't not decide to sell the company because they don't like, Elon or they don't like his vision for the company. It has to be based on shareholder value. But again, there's very broad latitude and that's, you know, you can have an extremely long time horizon uh, okay. as a board member. There's there's a lot of uh, air cover, if you will. Even if the recess is your mind, you don't want to sell as a board member just because you don't like Elon or his vision for the company. You can find a, an economic uh, reason consistent with your fiduciary duty to not not sell the company. Okay, that which reminds me of uh, and also Halloween Talal's tweet. Right, he said he his his tweet was, "I don't believe that the proposed offer comes close to the intrinsic value of Twitter given its growth prospects." Which is like doesn't mean anything really, but it's it's, it's framed in economic language. So like, oh, I'm I'm worried about the share price. That's what I'm worried about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And he doesn't have to say that again because he's free to he's not on the board and he's free to you know vote his conscience or not but 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 generally that's the case but uh and then and i do want to circle just back to to some correcting the record on on shareholder right our poison pill plans and what what they do okay. but, uh, but that doesn't mean a board can decide to not sell forever um and that's the typical playbook for but but it's, it's very unlikely that the Delaware court is going to tell them, no, you need to sell the company, you need to engage. And that's because poison pill or not, if the shareholders don't like what the board is doing, they can change the board. Yes. So, and, that's so, all right, so things, and that's how these things uh, tend to play out. And on this one, Twitter is actually more exposed than most Silicon Valley companies. Um, for, a, for they, a hostile removal of the yeah. board, you mean? I mean? I'll give you an example. Okay. Facebook has Mark Zuckerberg owns, I don't know what his absolute ownership is, but because they've got what's called dual class voting stock, he could he, you could never replace the Facebook board because he controls more than 51% majority stock. And again, those are perfectly legal in Delaware court because 
when Facebook IPO'd, they disclosed we have this dual class structure. Shareholders made the decision that they didn't mind that. It was a price to pay for investing in Facebook. So, uh, but Twitter doesn't have that. So I have to get one step ahead, but the, the next steps, if Elon thinks they're not going to negotiate in good faith at any price, there's a mechanism for taking your case directly to shareholders. You just can't take it to you just can't take it directly to shareholders now. Okay, so let's let's talk about let's talk about that. But let's first dive into this poison pill just for a moment because I want I, I, a lot of people were like, at, at least I wasn't this bad. I wasn't this naive. A lot of people were like, I can't believe they did that. That that poison pill is is not allowed. Like clearly, like poison pills happen all the time. Can you like? Can you tell me about like? Is there anything special about this poison pill that they no. did? Is it like? It's it's pretty normal. It's pretty normal. I give you a brief primer on poison pills. It's actually pretty interesting. But um, the other take that people were getting, even smart people, I'm not going to name names, but people were saying just by putting in the poison pill, Twitter has diluted its existing shareholders. I mean, just mechanically, that that's makes sense. Yeah, mechanically, that's not how a poison pill works. Yeah, and this this one I think you get he has to buy over fifteen percent before people get a fifty percent discount or something like that. And I think yes, if if the if the acquirer acquires above the poison pill threshold, then all shareholders except for the acquirer get the right to buy stock at some discount. And it, it, there, there's different. You're diluting flavors. the acquirer away. That's what you're doing. I mean, that's the yeah. It, 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 so it effectively dilutes only the acquirer, and it dilutes yes. them some. So massively, I believe it to be the case that there has never been a poison pill uh, triggered because nobody's that dumb. Right. Uh, right. But poison pills were uh, actually invented by a very famous uh, corporate attorney named Martin Lipton in 1979 um, and were upheld by the Delaware Supreme Court in 1985. So we're dealing with 40 years of history. They've you know, they get litigated, the poison pill itself gets litigated in a number of hostile transactions. But, you know, ultimately, the Delaware courts, unless there's something extremely abusive, tend to uphold those for reasons we could get into or not. But they do because the, you know, there's still a path for uh, uh, shareholders, for an acquirer to take their case directly to shareholders and change the board and remove the pill. So I see. So, so they're really the, the designed kind of like to. They're really designed to. Uh, uh, Marty Lipton didn't call them a poison pill. He called it a shareholders' rights plan. Right. Because they were designed right. to buy a company time to make a decision. Sometimes shareholders aren't in, don't have as much information about the board. Uh, they were really designed in reaction to hostile raiders in the 1970s you know, acquiring stocks that, you know, were beaten down, acquiring them and, you know, doing what Elon did, buying 15% and making a, you know, putting pressure uh, on, on the board to sell and sell now, not be able to have time to design a M&A process and get advice, you know. Okay. It's like if you ever watch Shark Tank and, 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 and Mark Cuban goes first and says, take my offer, Right, <laughs> uh, and if you don't take it and you talk to the other sharks, I'm pulling it. Yep, 
It's that if, kind of a thing. If boards, even if boards want, if and most boards do want to maximize value, a, most board members and I've dealt with hundreds of them take their fiduciary obligations uh, seriously. But what you would rather do is say, okay, you know, put your offer over here. I want to go out and you know shop, do a market check. Yeah. And yeah. Poison pills were rigid. Just you know, don't don't have to get into all the details, but it used to be hard to do that prior to poison pills, because you know people could come in and bum rush and buy that stock, disclose that they're interested. The stock price goes up. And literally tell companies if you don't take my offer in ten days, uh, I'm going to pull it, and then boom, stock price craters. So I'm actually not everybody is, but I actually believe as a capitalist and sell side practitioner in M and A that. Poison pills have been a net positive for uh, for shareholders. Not always, but on balance. And there's good data to support that companies that have shareholders' rights plans in Delaware get higher premiums. Uh, but they're really designed so that the company can maximize value in an orderly process. Have they been abused? Certainly. Could it be abused in this case? Yeah. But has <laughs> it been abused so far? No, not at all. Right. So even if they were, even if the Twitter board was sincerely just caring about maximizing shareholder value and they weren't doing any, they weren't, they didn't have any of the other concerns that we might think they have like ESG or whatever. They still might opt to do the poison pill um, to give themselves, to buy themselves some time and to, and you know, I guess if Elon's going to offer money, maybe shop it around or maybe, you know, uh, negotiate or go more slowly than, than Elon would push them to do. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Some, you know, I hate to say it, but in some ways protect shareholders from themselves. And the other thing it, do, it does is if Elon's offering, you know, $52 and you ultimately think you can negotiate him up to 60, shareholders, you know, putting a poison pill in place prevents him from creeping up and acquiring stock. I mean, it's at what, 42, 43 today? Something like that. Yeah. And so, was, go ahead. Yeah, it was the. You know, first thing we did when I was on the PeopleSoft defense and Oracle put a $16 offer out there and absent the poison pill, I'm convinced they could have, you know, pressured the company, pressured the shareholders uh, and had gotten it for something, you know, a couple bucks above that. And we ultimately held out for 18 months, but got $26 a share. So. Right, which is which is enormous, right? And the 16 was already a premium, I think you said, to yeah, the it was, price it was, of the time. It was and then you can also, and this, and, and this again, it, it might just be rationalizing, but this can also give Twitter's board some uh, some latitude as well. Is there are a lot of employees at Twitter who, if they thought the company was going to be sold to Elon and the board, you know, might leave tomorrow without a deal in hand. Uh, mm -hmm. And then if Elon, you know, he's under no obligation to move forward on this offer. It's just to non-binding letter so it, it, we had this interplay a little bit on peoplesoft we were legitimately concerned that larry didn't larry ellison and oracle didn't really want to buy the company but they were taking advantage and trying to you know damage the company share customers scare customers uh, we believe we litigated yeah. in some other courts and you know so so there's there could be some fascinating nuances here you know, if you give the benefit of the doubt to the Twitter board that they're, you know, genuinely concerned that, uh, you know, Elon's offer isn't sincere and he's just messing with. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, 
so that makes that makes sense. Let's you know for at least for the for this for the moment, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and assume uh, they don't want to. It's just it's not just that free speech is toxic to them. Um, what can Elon do? Like, what are his next steps then? Uh, assuming, I assume the board will reject his offer. You're saying they're under no obligation to share it with the shareholders. So let's assume that they reject his offer. What does, what can he do at this point? Okay. Yeah. There's a very standard playbook for this. What the company is, is doing, it's not just the poison pill. It's called just say no. It's the just say no defense, you know, okay. just effectively, if you want to know what just say no is read that Saudi, uh, tweet, tweet again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. The intrinsic value of the company. Right. So, there, there's no negotiation. It's just no. It's just no. Yeah. No negotiation. Generally coupled with getting an advisor, I believe they've hired uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, sometimes the player just goes away. But if they, if they don't go away, the playbook is proxy contest and tender offer. And a Let's tender offer about- is what that is for people. A tender offer is a formal offer for, for, for the shares and there's SEC disclosure obligations and you know it's governed by the by not only the court of the Delaware laws, but it's governed by the SEC and requires public documents. Here's what I have for financing, here's what I want to buy the company, you know. Uh, and then the com- for a tender offer, the company is formally obligated to respond through through a filing you know having board meetings getting advisors and there they have to be a little more specific about the reasons why they're rejecting the offer but elon's given them a lot of reasons first and foremost is does he have 50 million dollars i don't think he does laying around so okay so he he would need but but he could presumably he could go to apollo global management or someone like that and and get the the 50 billion backing yeah, yeah, and I think he'll he'll have. I mean, given how much wealth he has, he probably doesn't have to do that to have a tender offer that is compelling to shareholders. But he probably should. Most most companies, okay. at some point, you don't you don't want to give as the acquirer you or potential acquirer you want to start reducing the excuses for a company to say no. You know. Okay, like, and that would be a way to reduce it is to say, here's the cash. I've got the backers. Yeah, um, no financing risk. Yeah, um, and and then in conjunction with the tender offer, unless the company capitulates, you're not going to be able to close on that tender offer because of the poison pill until the poison pill is removed. The only people who can remove the poison pill are the board. So that's why I said the the playbook is tender offer plus proxy contest, and a proxy contest is effectively you know every every year uh, the board of directors is elected by shareholders of companies in Delaware. And every year that board of directors is up for vote. And if you're a credible acquirer and you want to pressure the board into negotiating or removing the poison pill in conjunction with your tender offer, which is really a vote. Since you can't close on the tender offer, there's there's something called tendering into the box where, where you have your tender offer be contingent upon removal of the poison pill. Right. Okay. So shareholders can tender their shares as a as a proxy, you know, and that puts the pressure on the board because if you've got 65% of your shareholders tendering, then you've got to assume that 65% of your shareholders support the transaction. And when you come up for a vote, you're going to be replaced. 
Okay. And so does he have to time these? Can he, can he do the, the, the tender offer first and then later offer a slate over the board or do these, is this a simultaneous thing where he has to kind of wait until the, the next cycle and be like, here's my, here's my proposed board and here's my tender offer. Yeah, you can, you generally would move forward with the tender offer. The, the, this, this very, this isn't, there isn't a blanket law in Delaware for how you elect your board. This is very specific to a company charter, but generally there's only a one window per year. Okay. Okay. Um, So he would have to wait. There are exceptions where you can change the board by written consent, but, uh, and I, and I do believe uh, Twitter has a staggered board where only a third of the board is up every three years. So arguably it could take you two election cycles to get a majority of the board. But in my experience, if the first slate goes down and your shareholders have spoken, you're, you know, not, not always, but generally you're going to sell the company if not to Elon, to somebody else. Okay. And now I think Twitter's at least Jack's term is up in May, which is just, you know, right around the corner. So if, if May is the date for, I don't know the date for Twitter, uh, you know, what their, what their calendar is for board members, but assuming it's May, um, I guess he would need, Elon would need to scramble or wait a year to do anything. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I should have done my homework, but I'm not getting paid to advise on this one. If the, (laughs) if the Twitter annual meeting is in May, if that's right, then he's probably missed the window this year because generally, you know, if, if the shareholder vote or the annual meeting is in May, you, you have to put your slate up generally a couple of months before that. So I, I had read that, that he's actually moving forward with a tender offer, but I haven't seen anything yet about a proxy contest to re- replace the board. Well, I'm, so now I just did a quick Google search while we're talking. Uh, uh, maybe not. Um, it, it didn't. Sorry, I thought it showed up and said when it was, but it didn't. I just know that Jack's term expires in May, which is where I'm getting that from. But uh, yeah, sorry, I thought it, maybe I could do a a quick search and get us some information, but I can't. So, okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about what. So if if Elon. Let's assume that um, maybe it's November or something uh, so that he's got time to do something. Uh, he would he would have to get the funding together, put out a tender offer, and probably propose a slate, a board of directors slate, um, and then send that to all the shareholders, I guess. Is that right? Is that how that works? Yes. The tender okay. offer you can do whenever you want. The, the board slate, you can do it now, but it, that's that's generally a once-a-year thing. Uh, he, may, he may have miss, missed his window there, which again shows, you know. That would indicate he wasn't Elon. planning for this. He probably hasn't planned it through all that well because you generally wouldn't launch if you had to wait 16 months to actually remove some board members. Yeah. Uh, okay, that that makes sense. Let's talk about the Twitter board for a second. Um, it's kind of a weird. So there's there's rumors going around. Well, not rumors. Uh, technically, the board minus Jack Dorsey owns only seventy seven shares of Twitter, which is pathetic. 
Um, uh, right. Uh, in fact, there was a there's a tweet about this where uh, from a guy named Chris Bach, who's the founder of a company called Lasky, who says Elon Musk is in for a bad time. I'm not sure he's prepared to take on a couple PhDs, a few MBAs, and a baroness who use Twitter once a year to reset their passwords and collectively own 77 shares of the company. Now, there's this kind of view, and Elon's jumped on this and said, "Wow, look at this. Uh, they're." The board's interests are not aligned with shareholders at all. This is a problem. Now, I don't think that's actually accurate because I think some of them, like I think the CEO of Silver Lake is on there. So it's not, he personally doesn't own the shares, but Silver Lake does, right? So uh, I think that's probably um, that's probably a, a misrepresentation. But does it matter? Yeah, I would say this, this is just another one, Carter, not, not speaking for the personal, for the, Twitter board, but I think it's a bad take to say because shareholders don't, board members don't have an economic incentive uh, in Twitter being sold that they're just hanging around for the 250 to 350 a year. I've been on public company boards. It's a very poor ROI. Nobody wants to be a schmuck. Nobody wants to be dragged through court. Again, I think I would assume that, that, you know, they, they may be making decisions we disagree with, but probably not for that specific reason. In my experience, if, if if board members tend to make errors, it's being overly deferential to what management, you know, and the CEO because they're closer to the business. Yep. Um, and again, in good faith. But if you've hired a CEO and you really like him, and he says, "Let's not sell this company for fifty-four dollars to Elon," I mean, Twitter's probably had. 10 10 year plans like the old Soviet Union and I'm sure this <laughs> one looks I'm sure this one looks really really good. <laughs> sure. Sure. And they did just replace their CEOs. They've got they're probably they have some new relationship energy there. Um and they're moving forward with his you know uh they've got Khrushchev instead of Stalin now. So <laughs> uh it's, it's everything's going to be different. Um okay, so I that makes sense. I mean I that seems counterintuitive to me as well. I mean, I know a bunch of people are bitching that like the board collectively gets paid $3 million a year, but that only works out to like 250 K a piece. And for sitting on a public board, uh, just actually not that. I, I mean, I know it sounds like a lot to someone who like, you know, is maybe an average job or whatever, but sitting on a public board, uh, maybe you can talk about it cause you know about it a little more, but it's not fun or easy necessarily, or safe oh it's it's a lot of work but you want to know what is a lot more work sitting on a couple a public company board that is going through a hostile offer we did <laughs> we did 87 in-person board meetings during the people's off oracle defense 87 and that was in wow. about 18 months yeah yeah and 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 board members are they can be personally liable for their behavior and often or no Mm. reputationally i'd say more there's it, yeah there's there's uh personal liability is pretty pretty limited again if there's no self-dealing just because you i mean think about how many boards have made really bad decisions yeah fair fair Enron, fair. it does happen a lot okay so 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 you're pretty protected even if you're a board member from your own personal unless yeah yeah and really I, and, and generally okay. there's what's called uh um uh, DNO insurance that even if there is some personal liability, the company buys insurance. It's a right. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think we've always had DNO insurance for 
that exact reason. Uh, so I think that's that's normal. Okay, so so this is Elon's option. He, he's got uh, he can do. I mean, how high do you think this price can? I mean, I know they're just speculating now, but like, what do you? How high do you think that's he would have to go for this to be compelling? I mean, could he just go? Could he do his proxy or sorry, his tender offer now with fifty four twenty? And is that enough to compel people to do anything? Or is he going to have to get? Is he going to push this up a lot? Or will he abandon it? Don't know, Carter. I, 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 you know, given I think Vanguard has already said there. I think there's like thirty percent of shareholders who have publicly said they're don't they're not compelled at fifty four. I think he's got an uphill battle unless he's prepared to raise the price. Hostile offers almost always have to go above the first bid. Yeah. Do I think Although in his letter, he did say it was his final bid in his letter. So we'll see if he was bluffing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I hope he does do a proxy, you know, a, a tender offer and we'll see. I, I suspect it's going to take, you know, probably, yeah, 15, 20% more would be pretty, pretty typical. Uh, I mean, because even shareholders who want to sell for 54 would rather sell for 56. So, or 58. Right, sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And then how long do you, like, should we expect the board to get to say something soon or like, how long can they sit on this? Cause they haven't said anything officially. Can they just never answer? Is that okay? No, I think this is their answer unless he, unless he files a tender offer and then they'll have, oh, to so have they, they have answered by just not answering. Yeah. Oh, Okay. So there's no more, there's no developments here. Even the next move is Elon's, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. If if, okay. he, if Elon does file a tender offer, then he'll get a formal response where they have to make some other disclosures. You know, and yeah, that, that's really the way to ratchet the pressure up is to put it into the, like right now it's just talking. Once you get into a tender offer, it becomes, you know, formal obligations, timing, uh, just Okay. Um, I, I guess, I guess this, I guess this has been pretty helpful. I'm trying to think if there's any other, what question should I be asking you? What should, what should people know about this? How, how else are people thinking about this deal in incorrectly? <laughs> <laughs> I think we corrected the ones that, I mean, they, everyone has, has an opinion and they're all, and they're all valid here. Um, but I think in terms of factually how this will play out, I hope it's, uh, you know, hope it's helpful to whoever, uh, to whoever listens, um, pretty. Uh, all right. It's. A, I mean, it's fascinating with just all of the nuance, uh, you know, and, and the importance of Twitter. Definitely uh, eclipses its market cap of fifty billion dollars. Um, and yeah, and then the other thing I would just say that that's really interesting to me as a deal guy here is the most likely result of all of this would be Twitter selling to somebody else. Oh, really? Yeah. That's how these things generally play out, particularly when you've got a standalone investor who doesn't have any synergy or strategic merit. Um, but this is also fascinating. Another topic is the people who could, the companies that could really pay a higher value for Twitter are almost, entirely boxed out because of the antitrust environment and uh, 
Right. So Google or Facebook is not a political environment for for, uh, big tech. I mean, yeah. I mean, just if if you were a Twitter board member and Goldman Sachs told you, well, we could get 65 from Google or Facebook, my first question would be what's the likelihood that deal gets blocked by antitrust or more Microsoft even? Yeah. There really aren't a lot of generally not the case in in tech. There's almost always one buyer out there who doesn't have antitrust reasons and and can pay more. But I think I think unless there's other some some other do-gooder consortium or somebody who loves Twitter and has 50 million bucks, maybe Jeff Bezos. I just don't see an alternative uh, bidder for Twitter here, which is a you know we talked about the headwinds that Elon has. I think that's a you know, that's a potential tailwind for him. I mean, even Jeff Bezos would have some trouble given Amazon, I would imagine from the, from uh, the antitrust folks, because you've got Amazon web services is their, their number one cash cow. And they've got, I'm talking individually. I think just as an individual. Yeah. As an individual. I guess antitrust, uh, Antitrust regulators won't care about an individuals. They don't look at individuals. I guess they only look at companies. I hadn't thought of individuals and, and companies that the individual controls, like Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think this has been helpful. Like I mean, I'll, I'll handicap this one for you. It's, it, you didn't ask. I don't think he's going to sure. get the company. That, that just you, don't, you don't think he's going to do it? Okay. I, I wish he would. <laughs> you know, not a Twitter shareholder, but I, I I think Twitter could use a lot of help. It's important. I'm a big user of it myself, but um, I think it would be better for all of us under his ownership. But I think the the loudest voices uh, that matter the most on Twitter and to Twitter, you know, they like it the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and I think. Like we said he at the probably, beginning, maybe this. I'll bet he could even figure a way to, you know, make money on Twitter because they've had, <laughs> they've had, they've had <laughs> ten years. They've had ten years to do it, and when you look at its cultural influence relative to the revenue it generates, it's just there's a remarkable gap there. Yeah, Stocks, I, I think the stock is below where it traded on the first day of IPO'd, and if I believe they IPO'd in 2015. Really? Yeah, it's. It's been dead money while, you know, other stocks have gone up and to the right. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I know know they're not particularly profitable, um, but but they are. They are very influential. Here, let me look at their. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they IPO'd somewhere right around where they are today, like a little. uh, I can't tell. I don't. I this the my search didn't work exactly, but it looks like, yeah, they're kind of flat. At the at best case, they're kind of flat, um, and nothing. Yeah, yeah. Happened. It's well, they IPO'd here, and then the first day of trading went here, but you know, almost all shareholders paid at least this much. So, yeah, yeah. Well, well now um, that you've had this primer, Carter, how do you think it plays out? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I the thing that the the. The wild card here is that Elon is not a normal person. Um, so I I would say 
I expect something possibly unexpected to like, maybe he'll do something that we just, I wasn't thinking of. I mean, I, I don't know. He is a, he is the kind of guy who thinks big. Um, he doesn't, you know, the, 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 the mission of SpaceX is to colonize Mars. That's yeah. not a small goal. It's not a small vision. So he's he's a, he does think really big, and um, I would imagine that if he doesn't buy Twitter, maybe he'll try and play in that space somehow. I don't know what he would do um, yeah. exactly, but this seems to be a passion of his. He uh, he seems to be driven by his passions. Just if you look at his track record of the stuff he gets involved in and what he does and he and he and he i know this he, he's willing to bet i mean i don't know if a lot of people realize this but he he was on he's part of the paypal mafia which is where he made his first uh you know tranche of cash he, he at one point um and i think it was i don't remember was with i think it was with tesla I, i'm getting i might be getting the details wrong but I mean, at one point he he risked personal bankruptcy. He was like a day away from filing personal bankruptcy. He bet everything on the companies that he was trying to build, and he was willing to do that. Um, and it worked out for him, but it could easily have not worked out for him. So he's not uh, he doesn't shy away from big gestures and big bets. So I don't know some, if that means he gets Twitter or if he does something else. I agree with all that, but is do you think he's and I think this is is, is a, something that affects a lot of people who are on Twitter, but for $50 billion, which would be, what, 25% of his net worth, is he overestimating the value of Twitter on society? I mean, 80, for starters, 85% of the population is not on Twitter. And, and I think to the people that are on Twitter, but only it's only important or perceived as important, you know, as the arbiter of free speech or its ability to affect culture to a small subset of them. It just, at some point, I think he's, because you know, he's clearly a brilliant person, is just going to say this isn't that important. Yeah, I mean, I had I had a similar conversation with someone uh, the other day about this. Twitter... Social media platforms move in cohorts, right? Um, and so there, there's like a certain age person who's still all over Facebook. Um, they tend to be a little bit older demographic than Twitter. They're all they're on Facebook a lot. But Gen Z is not on Facebook at all. They don't give a crap about Facebook, right? Which which Zuckerberg recognized, which is why he purchased Instagram. He knew that was coming and and like he he didn't try and turn Facebook into something for the next generation. He just bought something that the next generation was already using at the time. Um, Twitter, the demographic on Twitter is the demographic of people that are at the age where they have power and influence in society. It's the it's the people in their 40s and 50s and that it's that age, people who have risen through the ranks to get in some, uh, even if it's a small locus of control, they have some control. Maybe they're director at a company or they're the CEO of a small company or they're on the board of a company or they're a, you know a senior editor at a at a newspaper those are the people that are on Twitter and um i think even though it doesn't represent a statistical cross section of the population 
it does represent a pretty good cross-section of the influencers in the population. Um, and I think that's what makes it interesting. If I were Elon, though, and I was looking at this problem and I was facing down a poison pill and an uphill battle and having to way overpay for this, my immediate next question might be, well, how do I buy the platform that the next generations of influencers are running? And I, I just let Twitter die like Facebook did in relevancy and uh, and I move on to the next thing. I'm not sure. Yeah, $50 billion is a lot of money. Could buy the New York Times yeah. 10 times over for that. Yes, but would you want to? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So. Well, look... Uh, Thanks, man. Uh, I don't know if you want people following you on Twitter or anywhere, but if you do, tell them how to find you. You can get my hot takes at Wellspring GP. All right. There you go. Um, Michael, thank you. I really appreciate your I time. I don't tweet um, much. I comment a lot. That's right. You'll, but you'll correct people. Um, I will correct people. Which, which is, uh, it was great I to see you. Thanks you too, for man. This. Bye. I hope you found that helpful as you think about next steps with with twitter and elon musk regardless of whether you want or don't want him to purchase twitter so thank you for watching uh and look before the next video auto plays here please go visit unsafespace.com help support us financially uh it's not free uh to be doing this so you know throw us some fiat you get your name in the credits you know you get a cool little grenade mug bragging rights access to the discord server so, uh, so please go ahead and do that and thank you for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may corrupt previous psychological programming. If you encounter any of the following individuals, please administer government-issued neurotoxin immediately. I'm not sure what the neurotoxin will do because I am not a biologist. CRT is a complex legal theory that is needed to combat the epidemic of racist babies. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news.
please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.